regarding Paul's instruction to the elder and then to subsequent elders throughout history regarding false teaching. I want to remind us that the pulpit is for the glory of Christ. The assembly is for the glory of Christ. The covenants are for the glory of Christ. The worship is for the glory of Christ. It is to reveal His revelation that has been given to us to Him. To show the manifold wisdom of God as Paul would teach the church of Ephesus that even to the rulers and the principalities of the darkness, that's the devil and his minions, that Christ is victorious. Beloved, but we all want something different. In every aspect of our lives, that, that is an intangible thing that sometimes the flesh just grows weary of holding on to. To say that that's not the case is to deny the very existence that we live. We are frail and feeble sinners. And we are weak. And there are times when we don't know how we're going to make it through the next day. And just when we are standing strong and depending upon the Lord, somebody else will come along and try to tear that down. Some other circumstance will come along and trip us on our face. Some other issue will change. Some other thing will cause us to stumble. And then we will begin this crazy cycle of doubt, frustration, fear, anger. Well, beloved, in all of these things, our Heavenly Father is, is the same. In all of these changes, our Lord is powerful. We believe by testimony that God is sovereign. But sometimes by the mere fact that we don't hold fast in times of stress shows that we really cannot hold by faith the way we ought to. And so that we come to this impasse, we say, are we faithful? I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to be faithful to God's people. I want to be faithful to the call. I want to be faithful to that which God has given me. But yet our attention and our focus is on everything that the world has set down. And when I say that, it's easy for the Christians in the room to go, well, I'm not worldly. I'm not loving and lusting after the world. I'm not seeking it. And maybe so in comparison to other people in the world. But the very nature that we have to cut our grass and weed our gardens shows that we have a tether to the fallenness of this world. The very fact that we have to drip faucets when it turns 25. The very fact that we have to deal with things, work, and sickness. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. We are tangibly in this place right now. We are experiencing Equally, all sorts of stress and joys and good times and bad times, good thoughts and bad thoughts, which I would argue if it were, if it fit the occasion, a majority of our trauma comes from is how we think and what we think about and where we put our time. But beloved, we are in the world. But because of the promises of God and His Word, we have been taught that we are not of the world. 
That we have now been snatched out of the clutches of death and we've been brought in by force and by great power into the presence of Christ. And we've come to a place and a position before the Heavenly Father, the judge of righteousness, the judge of justice, whereby He cannot judge us wicked. For He has placed that judgment upon the righteous one, His Son, so we are off the hook. We've been promised life. Jesus Christ as a substitute taking on human flesh in its fullness, in its trueness. He wasn't partly man and partly divine. He wasn't, you know, a little bit human with a little bit of God in him. He was truly, truly, in all ways, fully human. And simultaneously, never ceased to be the divine high one through whom all things exist. And when he died, he settled the record. When he died, he set straight the crooked. When he died, death was defeated. The grave has no hold. And a lot of people say, well, that's a really neat fairy tale. That's what the world believes. That's what a lot of evangelical Christians and other types of cults believe. It's just a good story from which we can learn some hope. It's not a story from which we learn hope. It is the story of our hope. It's not about learning hope. It's about knowing hope. It's about understanding by the divine work of God the Holy Spirit through the written words, simple things, that which the natural man cannot apprehend nor can he rest in. But Jesus Christ proved that he was perfect. He proved that he was God in humanity because he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He took his own life and laid it down and he took his life and he rose it up again because he is not guilty. He did not pay for his own wickedness. For Jesus Christ is and always shall be impeccable. Without sin, without the ability to sin, it is not possible for he is God. And beloved, that is the nature of what we need to focus on. That is the essence of where our minds must always be. That is why we come here on a weekly basis by the instruction of the Lord so that we may gather together to be taught and reminded of this good report about what our God has done for our behalf, on our behalf to, 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 to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ His Son. And then, therefore, also, because of these truths, we learn to live in this messed up world. We learn to rest in this stressful place. We learn to hold fast with, with all the noise, to focus and listen very myopically and very difficultly to the voice of our shepherd. Everybody I know who claims to be in the faith says they listen to the voice of their shepherd. I know the voice of my shepherd. Yet those same people will say that God's given them permission and peace to act contrary to his teaching. Or those same people will say that they have peace in their spirit and their discernment has given them the power and the authority to take that which the Bible says they don't have. So what voice are they hearing? It's the voice of their father, the devil. That's not my quote, that's Jesus. 
And he's always, he says these harsh things. Jesus says these harsh things not to the sinful of the world, not to the people acting like knuckleheads and living in debauchery. He says these things of those who live in righteousness, who claim to speak with discernment. Beloved, even the children of God, those born of Christ, born of the Spirit, born of the Word, we too can be tempted to fall into sin and into our flesh and think we are doing the will of God. How do we test to see? By hearing the simple instructions, the simple instructions of what God's Word teaches us on how we should live according to the Gospel. And anyone, any man who claims to be a minister of Christ who would say to you, those things aren't important, is a minister of Satan. Do not hear anyone tell you that the instruction of the apostles are not effectually a promise of Christ to his people. Sure, you can live alone and by yourself and in rebellion and hard-hearted and and distinctly, uh, uniquely, uberly spiritual and think that you are doing good, but you are miserable when we fall into that place, when we go into the inner parts of our own holy of holies, thinking that we, me, myself, and my God is all I need. Oh, beloved, we have missed the point. We have ignored 90% of the New Testament in its completeness. Thus we have heard Jesus say, I am your life, and then everything outside of his mouth is wah, 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 wah. Remember how the peanuts heard adults? <laughs> murmur, murmur, murmur. How our children hear us. Did you hear me? Yeah, what did I say? I don't know. Thank God our justification does not rest in our hearing. Thank God even our faith does not rest in our faithfulness. But it rests in the power of God divine. And He gives us the resting of our souls, which is faith. To not just know the details of the facts of the propositions of the historical narrative of the Bible. Any cat, rat, and mouse can learn if they can hear it and understand the language. But faith is a rest in the soul. Faith is a resolve given by God, not just to know and to agree with the truth of the revelation of the gospel of grace, sovereign and free, but faith is a place of contentment. How can we be content? What has my mind got to do? What what does the Bible teach us? Our mind must focus on the very one That the word of God points to. The Christ. His finished work. His person. His effectual and eternal grace. And love toward his people. Whom he has saved in his obedience to the father. Who is the justifier. Of his people. What does that mean? Declares them right. And then we've heard John's instruction right. 
We've heard Paul's instruction. We've heard Peter's instruction. We've read James' instruction. We've, we've read all these things. We've, we've, we've looked at the Bible for years and years and years, but we have pieced it apart and we have indoctrinated ourselves to consider the Bible as it is printed with verses and chapters and themes and subjects. And it's not written that way. God has not revealed Himself that way. There is instruction from A to Z and it is full and it is free and it is given to the people of Christ. Beloved, the discipline of being in the Word of God every day alone with the Bible, no study notes, no this, is a requirement for our joy in this God, as the people would say, God-forsaken world. But it's not a God-forsaken world. For the elect of this world are not forsaken by their Father. No matter how hard it is. Beloved, it's going to get hard sometimes. And our joy cannot be tethered to the conditions of this world. For if it is, and often it, it is, when it is, <laughs> y'all know what you go through. And then the mind just follows suit, doesn't it? And then when the mind follows suit, the soul follows suit. And there's never, there's never, a, there's never a day when there's not somebody really ready to help throw you down further. There's always the encouraging word. That steps on you. It doesn't pick you up. It doesn't like Moses hold his hands up. That's an encourager. Well, you know, you're not standing in the right way. You're not looking in the right direction. If you, if you, if you. See, the encouragers don't tell us what we're doing wrong. And show us the missteps. The encouragers show us where we should be going. Because they're walking ahead of us, saying, follow me. Listen to what I say. Listen to what I'm teaching. Listen, look where I'm going. Look where I've been. It's been a tough one, hasn't it? I don't know where to go. Well, look, I made it through. God gave me the wisdom because I followed after Christ. And now you can follow after me. It's like a minefield. Who do you want to follow? The ADD dog, he can smell them. How about the man who put them down? How about the guy who's got the map? So we're going to follow Christ in this world. We're going to follow after Christ. We need to hear from him. We need to hear from him. And in hearing from him and learning deeply by the Spirit, together collectively as a family in covenant... We will be given discernment. Have you ever picked up a drink that wasn't yours by accident? And in your mind, you were drinking cherry Coke, maybe. Any cherry Coke drinkers in here? You know? Okay, one. All right. Or maybe it was orange juice. Or maybe it was water. And it wasn't. But the first sip, it is what you thought it was. And you swallow it and you go, that's not my drink. You don't spit it out the first, you drink the first sip because it tastes that which you expected it. And then you're horrified. Like that day I picked up that two week old coffee and thought I was going to die. I could barely preach that morning. It's terrible. I think I went home and drank some bleach or something. I don't know. It was obviously... Bad, but I'm still here. 
Well, beloved, how do we know that what we just sipped is not what we should be drinking? Because we're familiar with what we've been drinking. How do we know when that which is not of Christ is being taught to us? Because we're familiar with what has been taught to us. We're familiar with Christ. How do we know if something is or is not biblical in its counsel? Because we have been in the Word enough to know what it is. Like a young sister told me just last night that said, she said, Daddy, I have a great weight lifted off of me when I consider God's mercy in saving me. Versus what the world tells our children. Do this, do that, walk this, walk that, be this, be that. Just sit still. Just sit still. Last week in Timothy, we heard these words. Let's hear them again this morning. Verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different teaching, nor to devote themselves to funny ideas and weird historical things which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, and that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these three things, have wandered away into worthless, empty discussion, desiring to be teachers of the word, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are confidently asserting. Now you notice your translation didn't sound like mine. But I wanted to emphasize the meaning and the purpose behind Paul's writing. Now we've already gone through some of this. We've talked about mercy and that it is an intimate expression of of love and kindness, helping those in need. It is not merciful to fuss at a guy who's sick because he ate too much food. Well, you know why you're sick? Because you ate that bad food. You know that why? Because you didn't do like that. You ever heard that? You ever been the recipient of that? You know you ate the wrong stuff. You're sick. You know you didn't do what you should be doing because you're benefiting from the consequences. The last thing you need to do is hear it again. That's not mercy. Mercy is, I'm sorry. I really do hate that you're going through this. I wish I could help. Here's some bismuth. Here's some whatever other kind of chalk or drug you take to help your stomach. Well, I told you so. That's not mercy. That's, in a way, self-righteous. That's not how we do things. Paul is telling Timothy how to do things. And Paul is telling Timothy that he is merciful because God was merciful with him. And Paul is writing to Timothy with a lot of burden. But I don't think with any frustration. I don't think with any anger. And I don't think with any fear. Merciful. Warm, compassionate, tender, affection. Help in a time of need, comfort 
in a time of misery. There's a word for that we call in the Christian circles. We call it ministry. Ministry is always mercy. Merciful. It's always caring. You know one of the main reasons people don't like to come to assembly in our culture when asked why they hesitate? Because they don't want to be told how bad they're doing in the Christian faith. They don't want to be told that the reason they are where they are is because of the decisions that they've made. They don't want to be told that their hope and everything they've hung their hope on, which is the finished work of Christ, is probably not theirs to claim because of certain aspects of the way they live or think. And that's nonsense. And beloved, if the elders of the church of grace truth have learned anything, we've learned not to give ear to that nonsense. Because we can't change it. And beloved, I'm asking you not to give ear to that nonsense. Don't let the people in your life destroy the finished work of Christ in your heart. They can't take you away from Him, but they can destroy your joy. And they'll claim to be doing God's business while doing so. That's what was happening. This is contextual. This is what's going on in Ephesus. People are destroying the joy of Christ. So they are undoing the intimacy of Christ with His people. In the name of purity, boldness, knowledge, confidence. It's ridiculous. But Paul wasn't upset. He wasn't trying to stress Timothy out. Timothy was already stressed out. He's an elder for crying out loud. He was already having stomach problems. That's why Paul tells him to drink wine. Not Concord grape juice. Wine. Because he was having physical ailments because of his spiritual burdens. And moreover, he was having problems because people were problems. And that's what we are, beloved. Remember a long time ago, a, 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 a short-term mentor in my life. He's just a really interesting man. He said to me, he says, good news, James, is that you're going to get to work with some people. And the bad news is, is that you're going to get to work with some people. It's both sides. All or none, baby. This intimacy, this mercy, is the fruit of the Spirit. When we, as instructed, are focusing on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, you see how we conflate eternal life and justification and all the finished work of redemption, which is God's doings, with sometimes, and the hope of that eternal life, with living in the world and doing that which is instructed of us. Sometimes people confuse the two. Sometimes people say, well, I know that I'm in Christ because I'm doing all the good stuff. Some people go, well, I know that I have eternal life because I've joined the church or I, I, I did this or I, I followed the rules that other so-called evangelism strategy or whatever. I, I know, but these aren't, this is not regeneration. It's not regeneration to choose to be saved. It's not regeneration to decide to follow Christ. It's not regeneration to have a desire to go to heaven. It's regeneration when you are sitting and resting by the power of God and the absurdity of the finished work of Jesus who is God in the flesh, who paid for your sins. 
and rose from the dead to prove it. Resting. And ultimately, intimacy and mercy and all of these things are supernatural. Birthed from the truth of God's love toward His people. The spirit of peace through Jesus Christ is all of grace. It's all of grace. That means the grace that is sovereign and free is that it cannot be earned and God is in control of how it operates. That's what sovereignty means. God decides who and who doesn't receive His mercy. God decides who and who is not born again. God, the Holy Spirit, decides who will and who will not submit to His teaching. God decides who will grow at certain days and ways. God will decide the measure of faith that each one of us receive as His children. God will decide how His mercy operates. And when we are in need of When we are in need of mercy, it is because we are in need of grace. And that's one of the things that I I sort of left off. I spent so much time talking about this. But Paul in verse 3, let's just do a little reminder very quickly. Paul in verse 3 when he says, as I urge you in Macedonia, um, when I was going to Macedonia, to stay there in Ephesus so that you could charge certain persons not to teach some different teaching. What teaching? Anything different than what he taught them. And the cool thing about that is we don't have to speculate. We don't have to assume. We can go, we can look at Romans. We can look at Galatians. We can look at Ephesians. We can look at Colossians. We can look at the Pauline letters. We can look at the pastoral letters. We can look at the prison letters. We can see what Paul taught. Because he recapitulated it over and over and over again. And the cool thing about it is when we read John's writing, John and Paul are at the same page. When we read James, James and Paul are at the same page. Now, some people disagree with that, but they don't understand how to read the Bible. They don't understand how to listen. Because they're piecemealing themes out of a letter rather than reading the letter, you see. Don't trust the oversight of someone who can outline a Bible uh, book for you. Trust the oversight of someone who understands the essence of what's being taught by the work of God. And so he's saying, listen, I need you to do this. I need you to stay there. This is showing us, not by direct instruction, though it's already given in direct instruction. This is showing us that there are occasions, and God is sovereign in these occasions, when the opinions of our philosophical thinking often collide with the natural, well, with the supernatural, but direct and very clear teaching of Scripture. Some people would argue, well, that's your interpretation, that's your... No, listen, beloved, there's not a bunch of interpretations. This is a microphone, the brand is sure, and it's turned on right now. What is to interpret? Did I even have to tell you that it was turned on? No, because you can hear it. So the same thing is true when Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling him he needs him as an elder to stay in Ephesus so that he can put in order what remains. Same thing he told Titus. So that he could appoint elders in every location so that there is oversight of God's people in the instruction of the letters that, I'm, that they're going to be writing and sending. The instruction of those letters that explain the Old Testament writings to them. You can't start in Genesis because when you do, when you get to Matthew, you've got to be converted out of Judaism. You see? You've got to have the gospel before you understand the history. And so these elders 
are God's only means of oversight of the people of God whatsoever in any point in any historical place that is biblical. That's why plurality is a command. You must have more elders so that there is not any room for failing. Because when there's one person watching over the camp and that person goes to sleep, everybody dies. You see? And he's told Timothy, you stay here. Elders are to look after the church and one of their roles is to make sure that people in the congregation and people from without the congregation are not being inundated with different types of thinking and being inundated with different types of teaching. So if it's taught in scripture specifically, it's free game. But even then, there is discernment and wisdom of knowing what is beneficial and when it is beneficial to teach to the church. And that, is an, that requires intimacy. Anybody can put a list of preaching things together and sit out and record themselves on the internet in three-minute sound bites and say, look, there's my pastor. He's not looking after you. He doesn't know you. And because he doesn't know you, he can't help you in walking. And not everybody has that privilege, beloved. Not everybody, I mean, look around this room. We've got over half of our congregation not here today, but yet we're full. Not everybody has this privilege. Don't take it for granted. What privilege is it that when all this is over, we have love for one another and we can help each other? We can, we can help each other in life. We can walk together in the faith. We could take the Lord's table and be reminded of not just what the gospel is and its efficacy, but we can be reminded of its intention here on earth in the picture of the body of Christ in the church. The assembly. Notice the church is the assembly. That means locally in the same place. So don't teach different things. Remember, Paul is tactful and patient. He said there are certain individuals. There are probably dozens and dozens and dozens of individuals that are in this. Two specifically, he actually calls out. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Remember? Why does he call them out? Because they have come to the place where they're actually no longer with the body. That means they have been ostracized because of their unwillingness to stop insisting on their own way, which is unloving. And they led many astray who have stirred turmoil. Because Let me remind you something. Suspicion is not of God. Fear is not of God. Worry is not of God. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. Don't take my word for it. Anxiety is a sin. I live in a constant state of ah, sin. Let's not pretend. Let's not, let's not get sympathy because we have emotional or mental 
things going on. Of course, we should be sympathetic. I'm not saying that. But let, let James Tipman say it how it is. I live in sin because of anxiety. Because of concern. That's beyond burden that I take to the Lord in prayer. That's beyond oversight on things that I have the ability and the privilege and the responsibility to put in order through the teaching and careful instruction. That's me worrying about how I am going to handle and manage certain things that I have no power to manage. That's not of the Lord. That's of my flesh. That is of the enemy. But what do the spiritual, what do the self-righteous call it? That's discernment. No, it's not. It's sin. And if a lack of sin, if a growing in righteousness, if I'm becoming more like Jesus, where is my anxiety going to stop? Well, I thought it had been tackled until 2020. And I thought, oh, we made it through that. 2021 said, whatever, boy. <laughs> and 2022, it's just like, okay. Are you with me? It's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord when people are suspicious. It's not of the Lord when people are, are always in a place of thinking that there's some undercurrent of some wickedness going on. Especially in the church. A person who has enough time to contemplate the motives and, mean, and, and, the, motives and the attitudes of other people, uh, the reason that they are like that is because they're not getting what they want. That's what... Alexander and Hymenaeus, that's the problem. They weren't getting what they wanted. What they wanted is people to agree with them. And they were changing something. They thought they, they knew what they were doing because they'd been reading the Bible for 5, 10, 20 years. The Old Testament. And you know they hadn't. They've only been reading it for a few years. Maybe 8 to 9. But they were wannabe teachers. They're unskilled in Scripture and they are ignorant of what is required concerning instructing others in the faith. But yet it seems to me that a lot of times what happens in our lives is that we believe, and I've had this Superman complex too, if I can just get a few minutes with somebody, I can encourage them to walk in joy. You know what that's actually saying? I got the power over these people. Let me fix it. Let's just call it what it is. I don't know what that old song back in the 90s, I got the power. I don't even know what it's from. It's probably something bad I shouldn't have even made reference to. Either way, that's how we feel, isn't it? Maybe that was He-Man. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. All that junk in my head. I look forward to the day when God rattles all that stuff out and I don't have to, it doesn't pop in there anymore. Paul's desire was to put it all back in order. And to reconcile these two men and all the people that they had fussed up with and messed, made a fuss with, all those people to be back in peaceful unity under the gospel of grace. So that some, this, this suggests two things by implication. One is that God teaches elders to be patient and long-suffering. And you say, well, no. Paul even says it. Patiently endure evil. Patience and long-suffering with any interruption of the unity of the faith. For all who stay and remain in the body. I'm going to say that again. Paul 
is teaching the elders of the church to have long-suffering and patience when they have any problems in the church with all circumstances, according to the writings that they give us, and be patient with anyone who remains in the body and with the church. Because when people, what is church discipline? What's one of the benefits of it? It helps the offender realize there's a consequence. We don't consign them to unbelief and to hell because that's God's business. We treat them as if they're not in the faith so that they, because they are in the faith, will be turned by the Spirit of God to want to be back with God's people. But you know what most of them do? Well, they weren't God's people. So I left. The Bible says not to do that. <laughs> Most everybody I know uh, through the years when they get into the situation, especially, you know, the marriage or a friendship or a relationship at work or, you know, besties. You know what besties are? I just thank God for these people. I just thank God for these people. I just thank God. God sent you to me. Oh, Lord has taught me so much. Oh, you have been such a blessing to my life. And then all of a sudden... I wish God had never met me. Let me meet you. Well, which is it? Does God get the glory for all the praise that you've given? Or were you lying? See, that's the discernment that we trust in our own flesh. Praise God for it. Oh, and when it's not exactly how we want it, this is accursed. <laughs> well, if it's from God, it's not accursed. The only accursed thing God gives us is His Son. You've changed what you've been taught. And there are people who have changed what you've been taught, Timothy, and they're swerving from the truth, and I need you to take care of it, okay? So not only does Paul say, and this is what we picked up last week, not only does Paul say, I want you to charge them to stop doing it, I want you to charge them in a way of instruction, see? Because how do you change people's mind about something? You teach them. You talk, you listen, and you teach. From what position do we teach? From the Word of God. That way it has supreme authority. It's the highest of all authorities. The Scripture is the highest of all authorities concerning God's revelation and God's instruction. So the apostles then are the highest of authorities on earth. And they've written down their letters to the elders, which were the authorities over the local church. And so now, the elders of the church, if they're not teaching according to the verse by verse by verse by verse by verse instruction of the letters, then they're not teaching God's instruction. And when someone else comes along and has different ideas, then what does the Bible teach the elders to do? Teach them differently. For how long? As long as they're willing to sit still and be taught. A man who's not teachable is worthless as a teacher. A man who will not submit to the very simple things of Scripture cannot be trusted to teach anyone about it. And beloved, this is hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to be the superhero and to invest ourselves in the lives of others thinking we're going to make that difference in our own understanding and philosophy and interaction rather than investing ourselves in the lives of others simply teaching the Bible in a way that is profitable so that God himself by the Spirit will change them. 
Who gets the glory in the second way? The Lord does. Who gets the glory in the first way? We do, inadvertently. And then we say, I thank you, God, that you use me. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. See? So we've got to change the way people think. The verse 4, do not devote themselves. Teach them not to devote themselves. Charge them. Caution them. Warn them. Teach them not to devote themselves. What is a charge? It's a, you teach to myths and English, endless genealogies. And I made mention of this last week that, you know, you could go and you could look about the Internet and other places and you can find all sorts of historical records concerning Jewish writings and theological things and positions. And it's a lot of mythology. It's a lot of mysticism. It's a lot of stuff. And we don't have to get into that because it's not profitable. But everybody's interested. Oh, tell us something. You know, give us a story. I can tell you a story about reincarnation, you know. Well, that's interesting. But what does it do? It detracts us from the focus of what the Scripture actually teaches. So we don't need to waste away what is profitable in spending time worrying about what is worthless. I will retranslate this in a way that we can understand it. Charge them to stop teaching things differently. And charge them not to devote their time and their mind and their thinking to humanism, history, and philosophy. Now, how can I do that? Because that's what the point, that's where these things lie. And we could go to the church, we could go to the letter to Colossians, and we can see Paul talking about the exact same thing from a different point of view. Not Jewish, but Gnostic. It's always some new knowledge to get. Well, even if the knowledge is theological in its root, it can still be Gnosticism. It can still be a higher understanding. It can still be a deeper thing that the average Joe or Jane can't get. Well, beloved, if the average Joe or Jane can't get it reading it from the Bible, I suggest that it's not profitable for the elders to teach. And I would say that if it's not able to be brought out from the Scripture by the Spirit of God, that it's not in there. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If we can't give our youth the scripture and they come back in six months with all these things, all these interests, all these ideologies, then we probably shouldn't be teaching it to them. Because the remedy and the prescription and the command, according to, Timothy, according to Paul, to the elders of the church, is to entrust others with what? With the gospel, with the writings of the prophets and the apostles. And each generation is responsible for continuing that effort. So that, why is it so important? Because that's the remedy for false teaching. is teaching truth. And then church discipline is the remedy for those who refuse to submit to and obey the commands of the apostles given to the church of Christ. No matter what justification... Disobedience is disobedience. I was hungry. I stole the money. Yeah, go into prison where you can have free food. It's not a justification. And so elders are to examine and to teach those who put their minds on all these other teachings and continually are settled. And, and, and it's, just, it's why when people are so passionate about dealing with 
certain aspects of doctrine that it causes a red flag to go up in some of our minds. Because we're thinking, you know, we're in John. Let's see what Jesus is teaching in John 17. Let's see what the Bible would tell us. Let's study to show ourselves approved as elders and teachers of the Word of God. And yes, let's, let's use proper theological terms and define things in our own language. This is progression of thought and things, but we're not progressing in our thought concerning the revelation of God because the Word of God is already done in English. We don't have to sit around and think and contemplate too deeply to know what the word among means. Now, what does the verb is really mean? What is and is? Why? Why must the elders do this? Because they are stewards. They are stewards. The stewardship from God, verse 4, that is from God, that is by faith. Because what does all this stuff do? What is, happens when, when we permit people to ruin their lives by becoming so enthralled in all these different things historically or philosophically. Brothers and sisters, I can talk for years about these things. I love it. I love it. It is great. I spent most of my childhood if I had free time, staring into the sky, thinking about all these things, thinking I had come up with incredible ideas only to find later in university that someone else a thousand years ago thought of it too. There's nothing new under the sun. But the simplicity of grace, the simplicity of the gospel is where we start and end. No matter how amazingly uh, imaginative or thought-provoking things may take us, let us rest in the simplicity of it all. Because God hasn't called everyone nor gifted everyone to be philosophical. Nor has he gifted everyone to be able to deal with things mathematically. Or deal with things historically. Or deal with things traditionally. Or understand application. But together we are all coming from the same source. And that is the living and immortal and eternal scripture. Who is the word of God. So we are to be concerned more about that which is stewardship from God that is by faith rather than speculation. See that, verse 4? Promoting speculation versus what? That that is the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is the stewardship from God here in that context? That which God has revealed, which the apostles have written down. <laughs> That's it. And then inside this writing that were given to Paul by Christ and by God the Spirit now has been given to Timothy, now has been written to all the churches of history. Now we have here, so now I get to be a steward of Paul's stewardship, which is the gospel, and then I get to be a steward of the body of Christ, which is you and me. And part of keeping that stewardship in check is that we do not sway into these other things. 
one evidence of the fact that people won't listen to the scriptures when they hear a man like me say that straight out of context here, straight out of the context, not out of context, straight from the context, contextually. I caught it. Thank you. Everybody went, all right. Now, what was I saying? Oh, is that they will begin to, instead of receiving what God has written, they will begin to say, oh, yeah, but, oh, he's talking about, oh, trying to skirt the issue. That's exactly what Satan did in the garden. And beloved, when we find ourselves there, let's call it what it is. We're skirting the issue. We're doing that. We're doing that. No, we're being obedient and submissive to the peace of God. We're being obedient. We're living by faith. We're being stewards of that which God has given us. Beloved, it is impossible. Let me tell you this right now. It is impossible for me as a man, as a father, as a parent, and now as a grandfather. I mean, it is impossible for me. It's impossible for me to be Christ-like in my thinking in every aspect of my life. Because I put order in things that is not Christ-like. I put things in order sometimes in ways that are not Christ-like. And how are they not Christ-like? I'm not slinging fits and burning down lives. But I'm insistent and somewhat arrogant in my thinking. Not outwardly. (laughs) Not all the time. And I'm thinking, if these children... Sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do for you, you know. Is that Christ speaking there? Is that Christ speaking? No. But yet, how many fathers are not going to tell that to their children when their children are being run over by the world? You've just got to stand up. Don't take this anymore. Let's be honest. And you know what? I'm just going to confess to you. I'm not going to change that. Because the alternative of giving my children both Christ's attitude in the gospel and teaching, and for those of you who don't have children, you may judge me on this, but one day I can say, told you so. No. And there's a joke there. But I will still tell them about Christ, but I will also still tell them to make stands. Take these people out of your life because they're not healthy for you. Don't do this. You don't owe these things to anyone. Have you told your children that? You've got teenagers. I know you have. And adults, we've had the same situation, haven't we? But what does the Bible say? We bear one another's burdens. We pray for each other. We sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others' joy. Oh my gosh. What am I going to do? I'm in this weird, dissected tornado. It's not, it's just like, like this. It's not going around. It's sort of back in two. And I've got Christ and the gospel and the mind of Christ over here who knew he was God, though that was not something he took for granted or credit for or boasted in, but made himself obedient unto slavery, like a slave, a death on a cross, like a criminal. That's what I was trying to say. What do you do? The stewardship that is from God, that is by faith. So, on things pertaining to the body of Christ and things pertaining to giving instruction, we need to make sure that we often and always make sure we distinguish between what we think and what the Word of God says. 
and call it clearly. And oftentimes when we see others, who always gets the attention in the stores? You got five kids, you got ten kids, you got fourteen kids, doesn't matter. Who gets the attention? The ones that stand in line quietly? You don't even know they're there. You don't, get, you don't stand there all the time going, I just can't shop because I'm watching Johnny just walk so perfectly and quietly. Now you're going, I can't shop because Bob won't shut up. Put that down. Don't say that. Quit. Put that away. You can't drink that. That's rat poison. Stop. Don't pull her hair. Where did you get that? How long have you been running that toilet? Never mind. I see it down the aisle. That's the kid that gets attention. You're driving down the road and everything's good. You don't think to yourself, I mean, the... The, the frequency of these tires operating at efficiency, well, yes, I do. Okay, so, I mean, this, because that's my standard, you see. And when anything changes, mm, that's what I want to hear, and it's, mm, something's wrong. What's that clicking? It's the clicking, it's the squeaking. Ceiling fan. If they're not balanced, they're coming down, and they're going in the trash. I know that, none of that junk. None of that clinking against the thing. I'm not doing it. I'm going to tear it out, throw it away. I'm going to buy a brand new one. Or I'm on t- I taped pennies up one time when we were first married, you know, before the Internet. What you got to do, your neighbor, what you got to do is you take pennies. Have that sucker on high. It was running good. And then one night in the middle of the night, ta 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 I mean, you know. See how easy it is? That gets attention. Even the stories get attention. We get attention. We give attention to that which is problematic, which is loud, which is bolstered, which stomps its feet, which gives its own. And what happens when we're doing that constantly? The other who are right where they should be are neglected. And the quietest and most submissive child says to you one day, I wish you'd given attention to me. I had a youth tell me that when we first moved to California. He came out and visited with us for about three weeks. And he said that all that time that, you know, we were at Bible studies and things. And almost 80% of the time, these Bible studies were derailed by the people who were constantly unwilling to do what the Scripture was being taught, what was teaching them. They railroaded it all for the rest of us. Now, that's part of... Gospel living, isn't it? False teachers is part of gospel living. Problems are part of gospel living. Dichotomies, this tornado, is part of gospel living. This is the promise of God. Listen, beloved, this is the gift of God for his people. Because it teaches us stuff. What is the word for teaching and growing and maturing? Discipline. Be yet a a, a three-year-old... When you teach him that he can't throw toilet paper in the Walmart, and he can't pour Kool-Aid in the purse, he hates you. Why am I always in trouble? Because you're horrible. I mean, you know, that's not the answer, but you know what I mean. You're horrible. You're not horrible. You haven't learned. So they stay at home, we watch them grow, and then we think to ourselves years later, man, the toilet paper and the juice in the purse would have been cakewalk. 
You tell your 25-year-old, don't you want to just throw some toilet paper around the Kmart? I mean, they're gone. Walmart? Stewardship from God that is by faith. Remember, we're at peace by grace. We've received mercy and tenderness. And now we have the mind of Christ in our dealings with each other. The elders have to have the mind of Christ in their dealings with one another. And beloved, the word of God demands dogma. But God's people can't be dogmatic. It is dogma by definition. This is, this, it's not up for discussion. But patience wins. Kindness wins. Mercy. Where do you get all this, Pastor? You're just making stuff up. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. See, all, all the people in the world who have not experienced children in all stages of life and don't understand that sometimes being harsh is not the answer. You know, when your kids are all young, all I needed was hickory. Just show it to them. And when they hid that, a little tiny leather strap, we call it the tab because I cut it off a rubber floor mat in the van in Arizona on the highway. <laughs> That's all you need. Just lay that right up there on the dash, four by two. That's all, just a little rectangle. They'd start it up, and I'd just raise it up in the rearview mirror, lay it on the dash. Silence. It's like they all died. And then when they get a little older, you raise it up. What are you going to do with that? Whoa. You see? It doesn't work anymore. And then it disappears. So you have to cut another one, you know? It changes. How you handle individuals is in respect to your mercy and tenderness with them. Not everybody can be treated identically in the way and the manner in which we approach them. And no one in the family of Christ should ever be yelled at or called names or judged or fear being in the presence of the saints because they don't measure up. Have we all felt that way? And you know what's funny? We sometimes still feel that way, but yet it, we're not even experiencing it. We're just so gun-shy based on what we've experienced in the past. Some would say, well, where is Christ and all that? It is the picture of Christ and His mercy and His tenderness. Our aim, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. This is love that issues from a pure heart. A good conscience and a sincere faith. So the nature of false teachers and their errors, their theological division is to show God's faithfulness in unifying His people through the instruments of mercy. Let me say that again. When all of this stuff comes, we think, oh, where's God? He's right there. That's the point. When life shakes us up, it is a gift. Now it is an opportunity for God to be proven faithful if we just counterintuitively breathe in the gospel and sit still, what does the psalmist say, and know that He is God. 
Wizard of Oz was an amazing thing that could grant wishes and great power, but all he was was a projection of a little busy old man pushing buttons and pulling levers and blowing whistles and pushing and puffing smoke. Remember that TV show? Not the book. The TV show. Matter of fact, it's about the economy if you didn't know that. That's what we do. This is the average Christian pushing levers and smoke and buttons and wheels and turning and doing and, and we're making it all happen for the sake of the glory of God but the Lord says, nah, I'm just going to let you flap your arms. You flap your way. You're not going anywhere. You're not going to fly anywhere. Just, just keep going and one day you'll see take all these buttons away, I'm going to take all these levers away, I'm going to take all these controls away because the people of God are not in control. We're not in control. We're not in control in our debates, we're not in control in our discussions, we're not in control in our, in our projects, in our jobs, in our lives. God has purposed all these things. It is a gift. So we know that when these things take place, the mercy of Christ and the gospel is the centerpiece of it all, so that when we see it resolved by doing that which God has called us to in peace, mercifully, what happens? A majority of the church in Ephesus came back in line. And peace was restored. And everybody didn't say, remember that time when Paul had to send Timothy and Timothy came and praise God, praise Timothy. He did it. No, Timothy followed the instruction of Paul. And God did what he was going to do. Divine love. The nature or the reason and the, 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 you know, the, the, the whole experience of false teachers and division and all these things, no matter what it might be, is to show God faithful and unifying his people through the instruments of mercy, his people through the elders of the flock, those who oversee this mercy, who do what they're told, not what they deem necessary. This is divine love. John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's a lot of people that know about God but don't know Him. There's a lot of people that know some truths about Him but haven't learned the other things. A lot of people understand the gospel in a cognitive way, but they've not yet learned the nature of their Lord. And the church, when they understand the love of God, because God is love, are not troubled, they're not fearful, they're not judgmental, they're not hateful. Christ is our everything. So, from that, we have a pure heart. A heart that's been made and called pure by Christ. Christ is the purest of heart. From that, we have a good conscience. We know that what we do and how we act and how we speak and how we relate to each other in the faith, we know that it is right because we are following the prescription of what God's Word has taught us. That's the way to have a good conscience in our actions. But moreover, we also have a good conscience to know that even when we don't get it right, it doesn't change God's love for us, nor does it change our place before Him in eternity. Why do we conflate those two so much? Because that's what the flesh does. It wants to be in control. 
And from a sincere faith, a sincere faith is still. A sincere faith works according to the instruction of Scripture. A sincere faith rests. And a sincere faith competes and runs. A lot of things to think about there. The truth of Christ is given to His people by faith. And by faith they are resting. And remember we spent four weeks on peace and they are at peace. And they have received mercy. This faith is confident assurance. And in that, we have a clean conscience before the Lord. We're not hiding. We're not messing up. We're not pouring stuff into the purse and throwing things all around the store and pitching a fit and then hiding from God like they did in the garden. When God says through His Word, hey, that's enough, we say, oh, thank you, Father. We're not running. We're not trying to impose some picture of righteousness in our lives to make God happy. He's happy with Himself. He's happy with the work of His Son. And therefore, we who are found in Him make Him happy. Isn't it funny to talk about God being happy? And in the conscience, we are resting in what? The promises as reported in Christ Jesus. And these promises are firm and, these fa- and they're fast. And I said last week, they have full effect. And so we're not looking as sheep to find further ways to divide and be separate from others. We are looking to the only one who brings us together. And that is the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is about God's love for His people. And His ability in His love to forgive them in Jesus Christ. So then God is in the business, as I've said many times over, of salvation. And He does with His love and His grace as He sees fit. And we are beneficiaries of this mercy, so we should show it. But certain persons swerve from this. Certain persons don't rest in these three ways. Certain persons are not interested in doing this. They've wandered into vain discussion. Let's talk about it. Beloved, I'm going to say this again. And we'll see it as we get through these letters. Talking about anyone in a way that does not build them in the ears of the hearer, without them present, is wicked. Listening to anyone who talks of another in that way, without that person present, is wicked. Now what do we do? We can't, Jab out our ears. We can't unread a reading email or a messenger or, or what have you. But beloved, don't ever think that it is of Christ when that stuff happens. Oh, I've done it. Yes, we have. I've received it. Yes, we have. In every season of life. Let us take note when we see it. How do we know the truth from error? We focus on the truth. So the discernment comes by the stewardship that is from faith, from God through faith. We do not seek our own way. Because we have confidence in God's power and His promises. Versus confidence in one's knowledge or abilities. Beloved... 
we're always going to have problems. And patient and loving correction because of the patience and love of God is the elder's charge, not for the sake of the weak or strong, but for the sake of the name of Christ. Some people say, well, I don't believe what you're saying, Pastor. Well, verse 6, verse 7. There are people who desire to be teachers of the word. And they don't understand what they're talking about because they neglect the stewardship of God. They neglect the body. There's nothing more wicked than individualism. And there's nothing more grand than a lot of people being individuals together. It's, it's not okay. Go back to Genesis 3. And look at what happened in the garden. Here is intimacy with God, merciful creator, standing in a place of right standing with God, sinless, innocent. And the enemy comes in and says, being together in God is sort of like a weak position. You could be more. You could be like him. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we'll talk about those as we come in the next few weeks. At the end of it all, God ordains the most evil of errors. And God does so for the sake of the unity of His church. And beloved, the church, the elect, will never be deceived by false teaching. The elect will never throw away the gospel. The people of Galatia who lined up for circumcision, those first few in the line, boy, they regretted it. But they were never taken out of the hand of Christ. Romans 8 does not say nothing can separate you from the love of God except that you were circumcised in Galatia. Except that you went back to Moses. Nothing is said like that. It's nothing. Nothing. John says in his first epistle, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Beloved, this is the love of God. A new and old commandment. And it's why we're here today. It's why we assemble as we're instructed every single week. So that we may worship together and we may be reminded of one another. And we may be encouraged by one another. And from here, all other needs are met. We don't do it through the back end. That's the world's way. That's the seeker-sensitive way. That's, the unbelie- That's when you end up with a church full of unbelievers. Rather than the believers pr- trusting in the promises of God. And the provisions of God for this life today. Not just the life to come. So remember, this is why we come together. And we take the Lord's table to be reminded of the power and the efficacy of the gospel. The blood of Christ shows that he died. 
and shows that the weight and the penalty of sin has been paid. So let's prepare our hearts as one body to take this together. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your undying love. And thank you, Lord, for small moments of clarity. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work all things according to your will and purpose. Work all things according to your plan for our joy to be found in Christ alone. Lord, for us to understand and grow deeper in the gospel. Lord, for us to grow in our, in our distinctions of the gospel. Father, for us to see the truth in such a rich way that we're able to discern when things that are not true come along. And Father, most importantly, Lord, help us to judge rightly and in peace and to follow the instruction that you've given us through Paul to Timothy. Lord, we are unworthy servants. And we say that sometimes because it has become cliche, but Father, we are. And so I pray, Lord, that you would not only continue to teach us that, but Lord, that you would show us that through our trials and through our suffering, that we would do all things without complaining, that we would never sit down to contemplate your power with frustration, anxiety, fear, and suspicion in our hearts, but Lord, that we would love all of the beloved. We would love all those who profess Christ with the same tenderness and mercy and patience that you've shown us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this practical teaching that comes from a proper theology of this free and sovereign grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.